Well, good morning. Well, as we have sung and have seen and heard, we are observing uh, Epiphany this morning. And this is a significant day in the life of our church because we remember that Jesus' incarnation wasn't just for uh, a few people far away a long time ago. Epiphany is a day to remember and celebrate that Jesus' incarnation is for the whole world. In the New Testament lesson that Lauren just read, uh, Paul calls this epiphany, he calls it the mystery that was hidden for generations. I must admit, I love this part of the story. It's as though God holds back this wonderful surprise, right? This great twist that had been hidden. And if we go back, we know that he's been hinting at it as he hinted it through Abraham and he hinted it in, in some of the, uh, the Psalms, and he hinted at it again in the prophets. But then, all at once, he springs the unsearchable riches on everyone. All at once, that Jesus is good news for the whole world. And this epiphany, it happens, this mystery, it gets revealed in a pretty unusual way. So let's turn together to Matthew chapter 2, uh, verses 1 we're going to go through verse 12. Feel free to follow along in your order of worship where it's printed, or, or you can just listen as I read through Matthew. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose and, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the, by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what the star had, had, had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's word. It's given for our good. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for gathering every one of us here. Thank you for gathering us from the places we have found ourselves physically, spiritually, emotionally, from, from the year that we just had. Thank you for gathering us from all of the places that we are presently thinking about or facing for the future. You know how we all come this morning. You know what every one of us needs, and so, that, so we pray that you would meet us through this word, and that may it lead us to the word who bears our flesh. Pray this in the name of Christ. 
Amen. Well, sometime after Jesus is born, Matthew tells us that Jesus is visited by the wise men from the east. Now, we should, shouldn't imagine that these wise men show up the, uh, at the same time as the shepherds. But no, because Matthew, he tells us in verse 11 that, that they went, not to the stable, but to the house. And they see not the baby, but the child. Um, so perhaps the wise men, they visit Jesus when he is somewhere between 40 days old and about two years old. It makes sense in the story, right? Um, because later we find out that Herod is seeking a child two years old and younger. But who were these wise men? Well, many myths and legends have been built up around them over the years, including the idea that, that there were three kings, right? But if we read closely, we know that Matthew doesn't just tell us how many there were, and he doesn't refer to them specifically as kings. The term that Matthew uses is wise men, or more specifically, he says magi. And originally, the, the magi, they refer to a priestly class of people in the east, most likely originally in Persia. But by the time of Jesus, this word was used more broadly to refer to magicians and astrologers in general. And more than likely, these wise men were from Babylon, where astrology had become something of a sophisticated science. Now, people in the ancient world, they, they tended to believe that what happened in the stars was closely related to whatever happened in the world. So the idea that a special star coincided with the birth of a famous, important person would have been relevant and relatively widespread in this world. And if these people were from Babylon, well, then that would explain why they had some limited knowledge of Judaism and why they took an interest in the king of the Jews. Because we know, and Matthew's readers, they know, uh, that many centuries before, many of, the Jews, people, uh, many of the Jews had been exiled to Babylon. Regardless, either way, these wise men report that they were guided by a star. And as a result, they were willing to, take a, a, to make a several-month-long journey from, home, from their homeland in the east to Jerusalem in the west. This journey is roughly about 900 miles, so it's pretty significant. It would have taken them several months to complete. But like many aspects of the Christian story, many people over the years have questioned whether or not this really happened, right? In some ways, it seems so fantastic and far-fetched. The scripture, uh, it, it, you know, it's very critical of magic and astrology and mediums, fortune tellings and sorcery. Are, they're, they're all expressly forbidden in scripture over and over again because they're all associated in many ways with paganism. So if you were, with, if you were Matthew and you were making up the story about Jesus' birth and you wanted to establish this claim that Jesus was the true, rightful king of the, Jew, of the Jews, who would you have attend his birth? Well, if you wanted to beef up your claim, perhaps an important old prophet or a well-respected priest from Jerusalem. And the last person, right, of course, would be this pagan astrologer from a, from a country 900 miles away. So the presence of this strange caravan snaking its way through the holy city 
would have been really, really weird. (laughs) They were very unlikely, very unexpected visitors to Jerusalem. And Matthew, he tells us that the whole city is troubled when they show up. So what in the world are they doing there? Why are they in Jerusalem? So these very unlikely visitors have a very unlikely reason to be there. This is what they ask Herod. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So part of the Magi's worldview was when things happen in the night sky, they usually have corresponding realities here. I mean, that may seem strange, at least to most of us, but if we are honest, we can admit that there are traces of that worldview all over the place, right? We, if you have read a horoscope, then you know there is a trace of that worldview still present in our world. And for the purposes of the story, what, what they saw is less significant to the fact that, that they saw something, and it wasn't a fluke, it wasn't a coincidence. They saw something that made them think that a king had been born in Judea. And it was important enough for them, for them to pack their bags and to, to put a gift list together and to go on a journey. And another way to say it is to say that God met them in the place where they were looking. God spoke to them in the language that they understood. And when he did that, he invited them on a journey to find Jesus and to figure out who he was. So let me say something about this. For those of us here this morning who are wondering about belief, who are not yet sure what we believe, I just want to say this, that this is not some unusual tactic in God's arsenal. I mean, I think, uh, I think he's always doing things like this. Quietly meeting people like us, even unlikely people like us, right where we are whispering to us, speaking to us. He's whispering to us in the story we read with that, that, that surprising, un, unfathomable act of, of sacrifice that we just can't get out of our head, right? He's in that really strange and compelling lyric from that song that you really like. He's whispering between the lines from the results of that lab work that you got done when you saw your doctor last month. He's underneath the oft-handed comment from the stranger on the bus. I mean, I think God is poking around at people like us all of the time in ways like this, and he's eager to meet you, chasing you with relentless pace and deliberate speed and profound immediacy wherever you find yourself this morning. Friends, I don't think the question is ever, is God speaking to me? I think the question is always, what is he saying, and what should I do about it? Are are these whispers, are are these echoes, are these fragments of the other, are they just figments of, of our imagination? Are they just maps that lead us nowhere? Or like they were for these wise men, are they a deeply fertile moor that lead us somewhere for our good? So let's pack our bags, get our gift list together, and go on that journey. So that's what the Magi did. 
And this is what they say to Herod. We want to worship the one who has been born the king of the Jews. Not you, Herod. We have come for the other one who's been born. We thought he would be here in the royal palace, but obviously we were wrong. So tell us where we should go to find him. And after that question, the Magi, they received uh, for, for a little while in the story, and it's Herod and the chief priest and the scribes who come more clearly into, into focus for us. Herod, of course, is the, the puppet king of Jerusalem. He was given power by Rome over that particularly troublesome region of the world around 40 B.C., and, and, and the, uh, the older the Herod grew, the more paranoid he became. In fact, he killed his wife. He killed two of his sons because he was worried they might try to get power from him. And this led Caesar way off in Rome to say that he would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. (laughs) It's a nice resume, nice thing to say. So it shouldn't surprise anyone that when Herod hears about a newborn king, he's greatly troubled. And I think that is a really, really important part of the story. I mean, Jesus is an infant, but his presence is seen as a threat. Jesus has been nowhere near a throne in his whole life. And yet his kingdom is already unsettling to the powers that be. And friends, nothing has changed about this one tiny bit since the story was first told, right? Jesus and his kingdom always stand as a threat to even the most benevolent empires and rulers. He's a genuine threat, a real threat to every president, every prime minister, every ruler who that has ever walked the earth, no matter how moral they seem or how tyrannical they act. And the, real, and the reason is real simple. Because Jesus' kingdom is the only true, just, and peace-filled kingdom that this world has ever known or will ever know. His rule is the only rule that leads us perfectly into the kingdom of flourishing that we were made for as human beings. His rule is the only rule that leads us to the kind of justice and peace that this world was created for in the first place. And it is the kingdom that will outlast because of the self-giving love of its king, a king who, have, who gives his life up. And this is the rule that will bring the healing of the nations and cause the end of tears and mourning and sadness and pain and death. And so this says something to all of us, that this has something to say about our, our, our politics, no matter where we situate ourselves. This has something to say to every human ru- ruler and their politics, no matter where they situate themselves. And that is this, that every, human, that every human rule has a bracing and beautiful target that they need to aim for. And to the extent that any human rule doesn't look like Jesus' kingdom, it absolutely needs to change. It needs to be transformed. And church, this, is, this truth is ever-present in the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. The prayer that we often pray together, even in our worship, right? Our Father, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We know these words. We, 
We, and we need to remember that these aren't just pious filler words to round out the prayer. That these words are Jesus' politics. <laughs> that, they, that they must be our first allegiance if we are his followers. And that brings us back to the story and to Herod's most pressing problem at the moment, which is that he has no idea where this king is supposed to be born. He doesn't have the slightest clue where this king is to be born. So he calls the chief priests and the scribes, and he asks them straight up, you know, where is Christ to be born? Where is the Messiah to be born? Now, these guys are no real friends of Herod, but in order for them to stay in power, they have to conform to his agenda. So they lead him to the book of Micah, chapter, chapter 5, verse 2, and they say, Bethlehem. And strangely, that is the last we hear of the chief priest and the scribes in the story. Right? In, you know, the news, even if it's just a scrap of a rumor of news that a Messiah has been born, it does not raise any further exploration for, from them. The response to this news is to do exactly nothing. They don't even send a messenger on the short five-mile hike to Bethlehem just to find out if it's true. It's strange and striking. My friends, this is something disarming about this part of the story. Perhaps you have sat in church for most of your life, and the gospel is something that rarely moves the meter for you. I mean, it sounds like good news, but it slowly gets tangled up in the web of doubt in the web of hard life experience, in the web of silence and suffering, in the web of Christian duty. And part of what Jesus breaking into, the, into this world means is that we don't have to draw clean lines to the resurrection. Right? Your journey to, to Jesus doesn't have to be cleaned up for Disney+. Plus. Let's be honest, it's often full of anger and sadness and abuse and addictions and longings, oh, the longings to be close, to, to feel seen, to feel loved no matter what. Those real and honest longings, Jesus sees all of them, and he wants to meet you like he met the Magi right where you are this morning. He wants to meet you in the mess and hang out there for a while to begin to be honest about the real sin and the real brokenness and the real heartache and real trauma that has dulled and eroded your life. He wants to meet you right there with all of his kindness, not so you just look good on the outside, but to change you from the inside. So that when you show up to church and show up with your family and show up among your neighbors, you are a bright and new and whole. And maybe, just maybe, the curiosity of these pagan outsiders, not, not the turned-off religious folk, maybe just maybe these people who seem so far away from God can lead us on the journey to the one who can make us new and brighter people. Herod, of course, is quite different. <laughs> Plus to murder the child that has been born tells the Magi to go and find him and tell me exactly where he is so that I can worship him, <laughs> worship him. Of course, we all know 
it's so that he can kill him. Real Messiah or false, he wants no challengers to his power. So here are two reactions to Jesus' birth, right, to, to the incarnation. Here are two responses to Jesus' coming. Indifference from the religious insiders and hostility from the powers that be. And Jesus, he comes and he is met with indifference and hostility. And of course, this is Matthew's big setup because he is inviting us to find our place in this story. And he couldn't set up a more stark contrast if he tried. For, uh, for, for their part, the Magi, they set off to Bethlehem and they find, to their surprise, that the star appears again and it leads them until it rests over the place where Mary and Joseph and the baby are staying. God is whispering to them again in their language. <laughs> He's drawn them, and finally they're at the end of their journey, and there's no better way to tell what happens next than the way that Matthew does. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going to the house, they saw Mary and the child, and they fell, and they worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they gave him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. These strange visitors, these freakish pagan astrologers, the ones who have been far away from the promises and with no hope in this world, they fall down at the sight of the infant Jesus. And they worship him and they give him gifts that are fit for a king. And with them down there on their faces in front of Jesus, we start to get the story. We start to see how the story fits into the larger story. The true story of the world that God has been telling. We begin to see that this, this makes sense in the story. As, as God, been, God is saying to Abraham, right? I know that you don't have a family, but through your family, that's not even a family yet. All of the families of the earth are eventually going to be blessed. And then he says to the surprising group of outsiders and messed up people, I know that you are not a nation. You are of no repute at all, but through you as a nation, one day all of the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And he says this to, to his people through the prophet, even though darkness covers the whole earth, even though thick darkness covers all of the peoples, I'm going to rise on you and nations will come to your dawn. Kings to the brightness of your dawn, and then you'll see, and then you will be radiant. Then your heart will thrill and exalt. The visit of the Magi is God's way of making it completely clear that these ancient promises are being kept, even in a way that no one could have ever dreamed up. The visit of the Magi is the first trickle of the promised flood that the entire world would hear the good news. We are here this morning because the Magi went that morning, the most unlikely people of all, to watch them fall down and, walk and worship Jesus. The visit of the Magi is really, really good news. The visit of the Magi is good news for a, broken, a world that is broken. It's good news for Chicago. This good news for the Middle East with all of the violence and the demonstrations of power. It's good news for Haiti, the crisis playing out for food and medicine and everyday needs. 
It's good news because it reminds us that the king who was born king of the Jews is the true king of all the world. And this king is unlike other earthly powers. He's completely unlike any of the paranoid Herods that our world is full of. And he stands against violence, and he stands against oppression, and he stands against the chaos of darkness that is everywhere because of paranoid Herods. And it's a reminder to us, and it's a reminder to the broken world that he has been born the curse of our violence on the cross, and he has defeated it. And the day is coming, a time is coming, when he will judge it finally and forever. And the visit of the Magi is good news for all the outsiders, for the poor and for the forgotten, for the vulnerable. It's good news for the worst of the worst. And the visit of the Magi is good news for you and for me. It's good news for those of us who are sinners and who know it. And for those of us who are sinners and are pretending desperately that we're not. It's good news for those of us who feel completely crushed by our own sin or the sin of others against us. The visit of the Magi is good news to us because it is a reminder that the infant to whom the Magi are bowing has a name. The angel told Joseph, name him Jesus. Name him God saves because he will save the people from their sins. And it's also an invitation. It's an invitation to find our own place in the story, even if it is with the most unlikely and strange characters in it. It's a bow and adoration at Jesus' feet. It's an invitation to gaze on the beauty of Jesus and to thrill and to exalt and to be radiant at the sight of God with us. Let me pray for us. Father, we come with full hearts knowing that Jesus, he is our greatest gift, bringing rescue for the whole world. And I ask that you would work in us as a church and as individuals so that we do not meet this good news with indifference and, or hostility. Father, work in us to, to come with open hands, with adoration, with worship. And may this worship change us and grow in us more grace to live the life you have called us to live. Father, do this for our good and for the broken world around us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.